Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, a speaker, and an educator who loves to gather around the table with interesting people who have different perspectives from me. And then we just talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. And I include you in that comment because I enjoy hearing what you think about these topics as well. I am honored to have on the podcast today, Ruth Naomi Floyd. She is an emancipatory artist, vocalist, composer, educator, and justice worker. Sounds amazing, right? I cannot even tell you how happy I am that she lives in Philadelphia, because when we talked about questioning faith as a young adult, she said, Nietzsche says, I can't believe in a God who doesn't dance. For me, I couldn't believe in a God who didn't suffer. I could not worship and follow a God who allows suffering and did not know firsthand what suffering was. And I was hooked. I look forward to the day when the two of us can sit around the dinner table and talk more about faith, creative extremism, as she calls it, and music. Last week with Dr. Mark Glanville, you heard him say that the blues gained a deep musical sophistication in jazz, where we hear more than lament and celebration with its enhanced dissonance. This week, Ruth Naomi Floyd builds on that idea, saying jazz is the best combination of freedom and protest. So what is her history and her connection to jazz? I am the middle daughter of urban missionaries. So my parents, Reverend and Mrs. Melvin and Elizabeth Floyd, were doing urban missions before it was in vogue as in majors. It was an MA at seminaries. (laughs) Exactly. In fact, they were criticized for that. They're like, aren't you going to Africa? And at the time, and certainly in Philadelphia, there was a real serious problem with gang warfare. And so my dad had just won Cop of the World, believe it or not, 1969. And the next morning, my mom put down a newspaper and said, Melvin, what are you going to do about this? And in Philadelphia, in the late 60s, early 70s, every week, there was between four to seven young men between the age of 13 and 21, 22 that were killed each week in gang warfare. And he decided that he was going to preach the gospel, to reflect the gospel, to be the gospel, and to act out the gospel. Being an African-American policeman in Philadelphia under the Rizzo reign was tough. Oh, my goodness. And he had a, because he won this award, he had, the, the world was at his feet. He could become anything within the police department. He turned in his badge, as he would say, for the Bible. We moved, he moved his wife and three little girls. I was between the age of five and six into the worst area where gang warfare took place. And we lived in a ministry called Teen Haven, 1911 Mount Vernon Street. And we worked day up from sunup to sundown with the gangs. It was very violent, but my parents were creative extremists. They brought beauty in the midst of suffering and struggle. And I have to say, I've been blessed to live in many communities 
even though I was very young, it was one of the most loving and beautiful communities I've ever encountered. So there's not necessarily deep scars from the violence because my parents were creative extremists. They they weren't even aware of it, I don't believe. They were artists in their own way and wanted to be better artists and have time to create, but they brought beauty and they bought redeemed beauty to situations of just darkness and death and fear. And I'm so grateful for it. I saw the gospel acted out with them and other people. And for me, that was powerful. There's a reality, it sounds like. It was always embodied and therefore always real, which is always different yeah. than head knowledge when we decide yeah. what we're going to believe. And it just sounds like you had some of the best examples to learn from. Yeah. I mean, at age 19, I wanted to make sure I wasn't floating or being carried by my parents' coattails, as you would, you know, as the saying goes. And um, I asked my parents at 19 that I was going to take some time away from church and really make sure that I knew that I knew that I knew who Jesus was. And my mother was very upset and fearful. My dad thought it was a fantastic idea. And I, I took about two months to study different religions and to engage and interview and have conversations. Nietzsche says, I can't believe in a God who doesn't dance. For me, I couldn't believe in a God who didn't suffer. I could not worship and follow a God who allows suffering and did not know firsthand what suffering was. And so that was that's what made, cemented my walk with the Lord at 19. And I never wavered off the, the path in a sense, um, just investigated. But I was like, I can't. I'm glad my God dances, by the way, Nietzsche. But, um, <laughs> but um, I can't believe in a God who hasn't suffered. And so I'm so glad as we prepare to walk that path to the cross, that we have a God who goes before us, alongside of us, and carries us in suffering. So, yeah. Are your parents musical? Is that part of the creativity that they had? Where does the music element, is that hereditary? Yes, I would like to think so in some ways. My dad was a drummer and beautiful, lovely baritone voice. My mother was um, a soprano and, and later in life studied guitar. But they were products of the Depression. There wasn't money for music lessons. It was barely enough money to put food on the table. So before they met each other, when they were very quite young in their teens, they made a vow to themselves that they would, when they married, they would at all costs have their children have music lessons. I remember one time coming to my parents and we had the same meal for like over a week. Now I know it was the cheapest meal you can make. And I kept saying, like, again, to my mom and she just looked at me and I saw her tears well up in her eyes. And she said, if it comes to you having this meal or you having music lessons, music lessons will always went out. And so I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful they wanted to, but I would say for me, my father's grandmother, my great grandmother's mother was an enslaved African in America 
and was dehumanized and made to be the mule that pulled the plow. And my great grandmother, her daughter, lived to be 109, and she would not talk about her mother except on one occasion. And and then another occasion, I was running the sweeper in her house. I'm showing my age. And I hummed and I was experimenting with the low end of my voice. And she just ran outside in the garden to close the door. And I went after her and she would, her back was to me. She wouldn't turn around. And her daughter, Ella, came down and said to me, go outside, go play with your sisters and the neighborhood kids, which I never did because I wanted as much history from her. I was tied to her apron strings. And then later, Aunt Ella, my great aunt, told me that um, that my low humming voice reminded her of her mother. She was very young when her mother died at the age of 28, pulling a plow, which a human is not supposed to do, uh, rearranged her organs and they could not function properly. And so she died um, several years after giving birth to her youngest child, who's my great-grandmother. But that humming, that low end of my voice, reminded her of her mother and haunted her. I'm so sad that it haunted her, but wow, I'm so grateful that there's a part of her voice that is still in me, that her blood is running warm in my veins. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's it's my parents, but it's also my paternal side. Do you imagine ever when you are singing that she is singing with you in that voice, that there's, you can be her voice then because you have her voice almost. Yes. The only lines that my great-grandmother siblings remember is their mother singing one day, my children's children. So my great, great, my great grandmother didn't remember it just too young, but her brothers and sisters did. And so I finished that song for her, but I remember when she was telling me about it, I said, why didn't grandmother Hadley, why didn't she finish the song? And I remember her, she looking at me saying, how could she, I didn't understand that teenager what that meant. Now I certainly do. How could she? But she's not only her voice, but that sense of imagination and wonder and a seeker and a chaser of beauty, I feel comes directly from her because the family says that on her way from that place of dehumanization where she walked from the plow to her cabin for a wee bit of relief of sleep, a little bit to eat and rest, she would pick up a flower, a pine cone, a leaf, anything, and put it on the butcher block on a plate and say, this is beauty. I don't know how you come from a place of such violence and dehumanization and such an attack on Imago Day that on your way back to get some sense of rest, escape, of sleep for a moment, that you search for beauty. But history tells us from the camps of Auschwitz from that there are those creative extremists again who search for beauty or create in the midst of great suffering. So, yeah, I feel that her voice is with me, but I also feel her hunger 
for beauty is with me and convicts me and pushes me and not in a kind of spirit way of hoovering around me, but in a way that is, is part of my DNA. And I'm so grateful. She is never, ever far from my thoughts. I think she probably would have been an amazing artist. She was not an African prisoner of the forced labor system of American slavery. Is your interest in jazz, does it come from that history, from what your great-great-great-grandmother experienced? Because the blues and the jazz is that beauty that is like pressure cooked and then explodes in the horrendous moments of suffering. So is that why you gravitated towards jazz as an expression, your artistic expression? Yes, but it started at the root. You know, you had to be blue about something. And so it started with the African-American spirituals with no liberation in sight, dehumanized. These African prisoners lifted their heads, composed songs and sang that have stood the test of time. That is the root of most American music. What are you saying, Ruth? No pop, no R&B, no blues, no jazz, no hip hop. And so it starts there. My love, I was, grew up or surrounded by African-American spiritual song in many different ways in a European classical way, in a common meter way, in a gospel way, in a choral way, so many ways. I love the spirituals, but then spending time understanding their story and what their songs mean. And when Frederick Douglass says, slaves sing most when they are most unhappy and understanding those sorrow songs and then moving on to realizing that emancipation proclamation, the freedom that was promised was not delivered fully. And the blues were birth. And then from then on, the gospel. And then you move on to the other genres. And so, yeah, blues certainly of this freedom of lament, this, this lamenting, this, this wailing, the blues note, that those in-between pitches that cannot be found, that cannot be written. And, and what was going on during that time of the lynching and of reconstruction just destroyed and Jim Crow and realizing that freedom was not going to come and that lament of that. And then on to jazz, which was birth in protest. And so for me, you have that sense of jazz birth in protest, yet this genre music that I would say is the most free of any genre and most democratic. Each soloist, each member of that band is aligned and united in the conversation, but yet have a chance to speak their own words and their own beliefs and their own opinions, but then comes back together, united in a democratic music to communicate the theme. So I think it really was that freedom and protest that drew me to it. Hmm. Is that... Is it connected then, this title that you have as an emancipatory artist, vocalist? What does that mean, first of all? 
does that correlate with jazz being birthed out of protest? Is there a correlation there or am I, forgive me and my ignorance? <laughs> Not at all. Ignorance and are, you are absolutely brilliant and I can prove it because I've listened to your podcast <laughs> oh, no. um, and, and heard the, the voices of amens to that statement. <laughs> it comes about what that emancipatory means for me. And that means in my justice work and my HIV AIDS work for over 30 years, transgendered work, my composing, my singing, my photography, and certainly in my education, is that it's a search for truth and justice through and beauty um, through the lens of beauty. So that the most beautiful one, the one who created out of nothing, says that all truth is God's truth. And that when we follow after him, and that when we seek truth and beauty and do justice, that emancipates us from the darkness and from the evils and from the falsehood, and the false narratives and the historical inaccuracies and the isms of this world. And so that's what it means to be emancipatory, always seeking, always searching to emancipate ourselves from the darkness into the light through the lens of beauty of truth and justice. I love that so much. And Maybe this is why I gravitate towards you and towards your work and the sound of your voice. Maybe intuitively I feel that's what you're doing. I don't know, because I can feel myself in the last few years just gravitating towards any artist I can find who is reflecting beauty in the world. And the way you just described that I, you know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe those are the words that I'm feeling the effects of and understand that I need it. My theological yeah. world deals with all the like yeah. biblical statements that say, but that creative world that is pulling out beauty and pointing people towards beauty is important work, which yeah. thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, creating comes with risk, right? Yeah. 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 When did you know that you wanted jazz and music to be a career? It's so powerful. I'm so grateful for this. The community, my community pushed me. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. You know, singing a solo with a community choir or a church or something. And they're like, no. You have something very beautiful. It's very similar to the community that supported the great contralto and activist Marian, Marian Anderson. And so I attended as a child the same home church. We had the same home church. I attended the same church he did as a young soloist. And that community pushed me. You have something special. And I was like, ah, I don't think so. But it was in high school. Someone heard me sing at a Sunday afternoon service. And then the next week, the jazz band, the Alumni Association of the finest high school in the city of Philadelphia, Philadelphia High School for Girls, asked the jazz band to, to, to do some standards, but asked if there could be a soloist. And, and the director, Dimitri Kariga, was like, cool. And this person said, I just heard Ruth sing at a Sunday event, her. So I started singing and my parents were like, and, uh, but then at the same time, I played bassoon and flute. So I was in all city orchestra playing bassoon. 
And all the high school students there in all city met at our high school. So I would just stay from at the end of class, the end of the school day to the rehearsal time, which is a couple hours. And there was these guys that would come from all over the city and they would rush in with urgency, almost running, go into an empty classroom and start playing. I started hearing all these strange scales and intervals. And I would sit outside, do my homework and listen. And I was like, this is so interesting. And they would say, oh, that was the Egyptian scale or that was, you know, the pentatonic scale or that was the, you know, I was doing, you know, D minor harmonic thirds. And, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. And I just started then began listening, but not in a sense to sing it, just to learn more about it. And, um, and, and then I decided that I really wanted to sing the gospel of Jesus Christ and talk about what's going on in the world and what it means to be human. What better genre than freedom and protest of jazz? And so uh, I chose that genre of music and jumped in 10 feet. Like I look back and say, what, what the heck were you thinking, girl? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, my community pushed me. And in some ways I was drawn to jazz, but in, in powerful ways as I grow older, in some ways jazz chose me. I know that sounds corny, but it's true. So it's both. Huh. And so I was going to ask, and you already kind of answered it then, this, you've been involved with this theology and justice work that you have just consistently done your whole life. And you have also put that in conversation with jazz. And so I wonder why jazz is the appropriate musical notes to go with it. But in, yeah, what is it about jazz that makes it the right conversation partner for both theology and justice? I would say for me, looking at the history of jazz and then also looking at the theory of jazz. So the themes of improvisation, you as a biblical scholar know there's so much improvisation in the Bible. The most jazz, greatest jazz soul ever played and nod to Coltrane and to Monk and to all the great ones that are living still and the youngins who are coming up and doing an amazing job. But it's that improvisational solo that it, it should have been Cindy and Ruth on that cross and it was Jesus. And so from Genesis 1-1, the improvisational themes of God created to Revelation, it's just extraordinary. But then when you look at the theory of jazz and look how jazz theory is constructed and the steps and, and in the sense of the theology of grace, you know, Miles Davis says, you don't know the note is wrong, and I'm paraphrasing, until the next note. So there's a nanosecond, there's a beat, there's the next measure to correct what was a mistake. I think there was a time where he was interviewed and some inter- journalist was saying, oh, I love this moment at your, in your record. I mean, he's like, oh, man, that's just when I made a mistake. I just corrected it. He's like, it's brilliant. That is that not the theology of grace? A chance to that God gives us a chance to, with His power and His His grace and mercy, to forgives us any chance to restore, and uses us as instruments to do that. So it's really powerful in, in that way, and it's it's really it's really beautiful. But I think for me, my father, one day he said, "What are you going to be doing when you're not behind a microphone?" And when you're not composing or you're not taking pictures, 
What else are you doing for your community and the world? And so that question just really uh, convicted me and pushed me. And then I realized that for me, that I had to be doing something along with creativity in the sense of my heritage of my parents. So for me, right then along that line was the early days of HIV when you didn't know how it was transmitted, when it was mostly white male gay men dying and the Christian response from our Christian theological leaders were horrendous, were vile, were terrible. And I was like, no, I am going to resist and I'm going to protest that. And I'm going to do it by serving and sitting at the feet of these beautiful and precious human beings who are dying um, and struggling with this disease. And it was a darkness, man. I, I mean, they were this, it was about, it reminded me of my early days of my parents. They were dying per week. I mean, I look back at my calendar and it was like, two, three deaths a week. It just, it was, you know, this is when, you know, no one knew how it was transmitted and, and everyone was, you know, I remember one day my father's very concerned for his middle daughter, what's going on. Cause I said, Oh, I came in contact with body fluids with the AIDS patient while I was caring for them. I have to get tested. It took seven days. You're on like, Lord, do I have it? You know? And he just said, Ruth, why, why can't you just sing? Which is very different from what he said. He was a father at that time. And I said, Daddy, unfortunately, my parents, and I used his work against them. And I said, so what did you expect? So I think for me, jazz, not only from the, the theory and the essence and the elements of the music and then historical, but also what am I doing when I'm not creating that also brings beauty and justice. And so for me, I'm so glad. And it keeps me honest in both in my justice work and in my music work. And I, I hope that I'm always able to do both. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too, because your voice is astoundingly amazing and powerful and emotive. So I hope you're always singing. Oh, <laughs> please don't stop. <laughs> yes. No, 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 no. Yeah. I am. There was a while where I, I felt like, should I just commit at this season of my life all to creating? And I did for two or three months and it did not feel comfortable or natural. And looking back on the music, it was not, um, it was a different voice. And I wouldn't say it was less, but it wasn't necessarily the voice I went. I went back and changed it because it it my justice work informs my music and my music informs justice work. And then education, like, yeah, that all flows together. Yeah. And so creating and beauty is not always found in beautiful places. We, we're approaching Holy Thursday. So we find Jesus in the garden. And he has this bitter cup. And I grew up in the Rambo era. So as a little girl, I was like, uh, Jesus, this is not the time to ask your, your boys if they can pray with you and stay with you. This is the time to stand up and dethrone and destroy the Roman Empire and sit, on, sit high. And, and we find him asking of all things, can this cup pass? And I would sit in Holy Thursday and say, I'm so confused. Does he not want to die for me? 
But John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. And isn't that why he came? And isn't that why he was prophesied? And then what's the point of the Old Testament? And what's the point of this and that? And, and you know, and the line of David. And here, it's game day. You're either going to, it's game day. And Jesus is saying, can this, but do I have to drink of the bitter cup? And then as I, I grew more in my walk with the Lord and grew more in theology, I realized that what a beautiful gift. What a beautiful gift to ask. He knew the answer, but he still asked the question. And he taught us about his vulnerability. He taught us what Jesus means to be human because he's about to really show it on the cross. But he gives us a preview of his vulnerability, of his transparency, and more important, the impact of lament. What it means to lament, that God will not change always the circumstances but that we have to say, as he said, the Lord will bring a comforter, drink the cup, and not my will but thine be done. And then the beautiful, the most beautiful blue song ever sung and written, my God, my God, why thou hast forsaken me? And then after that, unspeakable joy of the resurrection. But we have to go through Saturday. We can't have that unspeakable joy without the darkness of Good Friday. And more importantly, in some ways where we are now with the pandemic, we have to Saturdayize it. We have to stay in that waiting period, that dance between total despair and unspeakable joy. So yeah, yeah. That sacred Saturday is something as I get older, I've spent so much more time thinking about. and, And I find an internal resistance to from going ah oh, friday he died but sunday yeah. and i'm like but there was a lot of unknown and a lot of suffering a lot of questioning of identity yeah. disciples going hey i thought i was making smart decisions and following yeah. this guy and he ended up on a cross like all these other people and that kind of emotion is something that i find i'm actually more and more comfortable with sitting in that moment, because it reflects moments of my own life. Yes. And it's in the waiting and it's in that waiting. You know, it's coming, but you know, there's a great old gospel song. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. And so it's in that waiting that we, there's so much learning, right? About ourselves and about the one we serve. Oh, and just wait for the second half of our conversation next week. We will be talking about a new project Ruth Naomi Floyd has that combines the words of Frederick Douglass with jazz. The ability to bring these conversations to you is possible through my team on Patreon. People like Mindy and Bon Koo and Brent Emery make this podcast sustainable and commercial free for all of you. So thank you so much. And if you want to be a part of the Patreon team, you will find a link in the episode notes of the show. As always, it is wonderful to sit and exchange ideas with you at this virtual table. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the opening music, and Mark Glanville from last week's episode plays all the piano segments. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 